Good morning. Uh, it's great to see all of you. Uh, if this is your first time visiting, my name is Bang. Uh, true story. Um, if you could take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. It's the third gospel in the New Testament. Uh, in our church, for the next three Sundays starting today, we're actually going to uh, walk into a new series called um, Radically Ordinary. And for those of you who are just as confused as the person next to you about what this series is about, maybe I can kind of set it up for us uh, by, by way of personal story. Uh, I don't know what your faith journey has been and what it's exactly looked like, but uh, for me, I, I kind of grew up in the church, and uh, that's come with unique advantages, but also unique disadvantages as well. Uh, and so for me growing up, uh, as a church kid, kind of being churched, having attended all the uh, events and so forth, uh, I found myself, my faith journey, really taking on this form of confusion in my discipleship and what it meant to follow Jesus. Because what I was experiencing was kind of uh, mixed experiences and simultaneously I, I felt like I was getting uh, mixed messages where on the one hand, what people were telling me was uh, that uh, the Christian life, Christian discipleship, that our, our pursuit of Jesus Christ, uh, it's really about uh, faithfulness to Jesus. It's really about the everyday faithfulness. That was never really defined, but that's what it was really about. And so it was about you being faithful. Uh, it wasn't about us doing anything spectacular. And so I kind of experienced the ordinary church life. I went to VBS. I went to all the youth retreats and then cried on the last night and then turned back into a pagan a few days after. No. Uh, and, you know, I experienced all that. And, uh, you know, there was not, never really emphasis on doing anything spectacular for God. It was just, no, be, be faithful, come to church and serve the church. But then at the same time, on, this, on the other spectrum of my spiritual experiences, I, I was going through things that were not uh, the norm. Uh, it was a little bit out of the ordinary, if I could put it in those terms. So for example, like in the 10th grade, I kind of had this spiritual awakening uh, where on account of my campus ministry, I, I uh, really woke up in, in certain aspects and suddenly I found myself as a 17, 18 year old high school kid preaching in my high school gym to my peers. I remember at the age of 20 going over to Myanmar and tr helping train seminarians to go plant churches that were going to go spread the gospel. And so on this other end of the spectrum, the, the kind of messaging that I was getting about what the Christian faith was about to look like was that it was really more uh, extraordinary, that you were supposed to be sold out, that you were supposed to kind of break out of the routine and the mundane of your faith and do something kind of radical for Jesus. And so I found myself kind of walking in the middle of these two dualities going, what, am I, what, what is Christian discipleship? What does it mean to live a life where we follow Jesus and it's pleasing to God the Father? Am I supposed to walk into some category called faithfulness, even though I really don't know what that means? Or am I supposed to break out of the routine and kind of walk into some category called you know, radical or spectacular? And, and maybe this resonates with some of us this morning because for some of us, uh, your Christian life, your discipleship is actually spent uh, most of your hours at a nine-to-five job. But at the same time, you remember when you were a college student and praying with tears for the 1040 window of the world where the gospel has not been preached. And so you're at this place now where you're trying to reconcile your nine-to-five with the 1040. 
And, and you're not sure, am, am I being faithful? Am I really pleasing God? Is this the discipleship that I'm supposed to be walking into? And so every month when there's missions focused, you're totally on board and you feel really guilty at the same time because there's this tension. For others of us, you are a, a parent of young kids and that has brought something called unexpected challenges, to put it mildly. But then you remember a time in your life when your life was wrapped around serving the local church. I mean, you were the person that was starting ministries in the church. And so, so now you're trying to reconcile, trying to take care of your own kids and God's children in the church. And you're not sure, am I, is this the discipleship that I'm supposed to be walking into? We're not sure. Some of us who are in college or younger, I mean, you know that right now you're supposed to be doing well in your grades and you're supposed to be learning your craft for the future and you should probably do another internship because you need to put that on your resume because so far you've done zero internships. Uh, But on the flip side, I shouldn't have said that, on the flip side, um, you're walking on a college campus where on a daily basis you know that you're surrounded by hundreds of thousands of people who who don't know Jesus. And so there, there's this weird duality and tension. And so the question is, what is Christian discipleship really supposed to look like? What is the sphere that we're supposed to walk into and occupy in terms of obedience? Is it more so the ordinary and quote unquote faithful things of the everyday? Or uh, is it more of the radical and spectacular aspects of the faith? And so for the next three weeks, the series, Radically Ordinary, what we want to do is we want to speak into the very tension and kind of blurry area of the space. Why? Because what we want to do is we want to reclaim Christian discipleship back from maybe man-made categories that 21st century Western Americans we have created that are helpful, but maybe underneath all that, we've kind of lost sight of what it really means in terms of following Jesus just on an everyday basis as the disciple of Jesus, as we examine the scriptures. And so we're really going to do that for the next couple weeks. Starting this morning, uh, we're going to really examine this by actually looking at the life of Jesus. Now, I realize for some of us, you might be like, seriously, you give this whole spiel about how do we live radically ordinarily, and you're going to talk about Jesus, who is the most non-ordinary. Uh, But I would actually argue that in many ways, isn't Jesus kind of the pinnacle? Isn't he the paradigm of what a disciple is supposed to be like? That if you were to define disciple of Jesus, a a disciple of God, a God follower, that however pretty much Jesus lived his life like, that's probably the accurate template And so uh, we're actually going to examine the gospel of Luke this morning and see how he lived his life before God, even from his early years. And we may be very surprised and see things about Jesus that may actually make us a little bit uncomfortable. So take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 22. In context here, uh, Jesus has just been born And so he's a young baby, and Luke starts recording, and this is where we'll start reading, from Luke 22, verse 22. Uh, And it says, And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, I'll explain that in a little bit, they, that's Jesus' parents, they brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. 
As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and uh, this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And when the Holy Spirit was upon him, and the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus, who's 40 days old at this point, to do for him according to the custom of the law, Simeon took Jesus up in his arms and blessed God and said, now you are letting your servant depart in peace for according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, This child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, for a sign that is is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, and so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from, uh, from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they, that's Jesus' parents and Jesus, had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own little town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. So now, we know that every single gospel account is trying to display a certain picture about Jesus. They are trying to give an account of Jesus' unique identity namely as the Son of God, the Christ who was promised in the Old Testament. And so we clearly see that in the text, right? I mean, Jesus comes into the temple and he's being uh, consecrated as the firstborn. More on that in a little bit. But when he does, uh, you have these righteous people who are praying and fasting and there's a prophetess. And when they see Jesus, something within their souls is stirred. And they're able to affirm and confirm that this indeed is not just any ordinary child, but their identity is certainly unique as the Son of God. So without a doubt, this Jesus is not just your everyday child. However, I think Luke is trying to do something here that we often don't see because Luke knows things about their day that we're not familiar with. You know, uh, this account actually is, is unique to the gospel of Luke. No other gospel has this account where Jesus is 40 days years old and his parents bring him to the temple to be consecrated as a firstborn. You know, uh, that was just standard procedure. You know, we, we think like, uh, oh my gosh, his parents, they must, they must be really godly and they're doing something really crazy here and spiritual and godly. No, it was standard procedure. This is like, almost like baby, uh, baby dedication, right? You have a child. And you brought your firstborn and they, people prayed over him, And the child belonged to the Lord. And so immediately what we see is this unique divine child is first of all 40 days old. Pooping, can I say? Napping. Breastfeeding. And he grows up in a rather ordinary home where his parents 
faithfully attend church, sign Jesus up for baby dedication, and then they go back to their small little town of Nazareth. So while Luke does highlight Jesus' uniqueness, he does so in a way where he wraps around Jesus' ordinary humanity. In fact, one commentator says about this, that what is significant is that Jesus' parents were faithful to the Jewish law and that the child grew normally as the object of God's grace. There's a uniqueness, but there's something very ordinary and human about Jesus. This narrative continues. If you look in your Bibles to verse 41, chapter 2, Jesus has grown up a little bit at this point. Verse 41 says, Now uh, Jesus' parents, they went up to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when Jesus was 12 years old, imagine that, uh, they went up according to custom. So they're good, faithful churchgoers. And when the feast ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. And after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I, we've been searching for you in great distress. And Jesus said to them, 12-year-old Jesus said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And Jesus went down with them and came to Nazareth. And he was submissive to his parents. And his mother treasured up these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man, so we see this uh, con- uh, theme continuing. On the one hand, we, we again see the uniqueness of Jesus. Because he's 12 years old and he's sitting in the temple and everyone's amazed by his knowledge. And, and then when his parents are like, we totally forgot about you because we're great parents, but where were you? Why have you treated us like this? He, he, he says stuff like, oh, you know, why were you looking for me? I had to be with my father. I mean, could you imagine if a catapult student said that? Right, like I was at church all week. Why didn't you come home? You didn't know I had to be with my father. Some of you say, "Well, I I am your father," right? Like, what what is? There's something distinct and unique about him as the son of God. But again, this account is unique to the Gospel of Luke. There are things that he knows that we don't know, and namely, which is that his parents, his family, they were your standard, good, religious Jewish family. They were faithful. Every year they went up to the uh, feast of the Passover. They took Jesus because Jesus needed a ride because he's 12 years old. Also, what Luke knows is that by the age of 13, Jewish males in the first century, they were actually expected to begin to adhere to the Mosaic law on their own. Meaning by the age of 13, a Jewish boy was expected to own and personalize his faith. Which means that on the one hand, yeah, like Jesus is like, he's like an early bird, right? 12, 13, he, he's a, you know, but it's not like he's like a seven-year-old prodigy. And so there are some, there's something unique about him, and yet there's something so human about him where he couldn't even go to the Passover feast without his parents, and his parents left him. And he couldn't even come back on his own. His parents had to come searching for him. 
There's something divinely unique and yet so ordinarily human. Now, you don't have to turn here, but in the very next chapter, the narrative that begins to advance is not about Jesus. It's actually about John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist shows up and he, it's glorious. He's yelling at religious people. He's screaming at people. He's correcting political leaders, tax collectors, Roman centurions. He's baptizing people for repentance. Glorious ministry. You know who's nowhere to be found in the passage? Jesus. He's gone completely dark. For how long? 18 years. Do you know what Jesus is doing for 18 years in silence? while John the Baptist is doing kingdom ministry? Well, uh, in the first century, Hebrew males, roughly around the age of 10 to 12, they would begin to take on their father's trade. So you didn't get to sign up for a major back then. Whatever your dad did, that was your major. And then your son, that was his major too. Life was simpler back then. Uh, And so Jesus enters into his father's occupation and trade, which was what? A carpenter. An artisan, he worked with his hands, stone, wood. For 18 years, Jesus is nowhere to be found on the public scene. He is a carpenter working with his hands. What do you think about Jesus' life up to this point? For the first 30 years of his life, I'm 31. I shouldn't have said that. For the first 30 years of his life, if you're really honest, what do you think about Jesus' life? It's pretty ordinary. It's pretty normal. There's something very um, human about his life. He, he's, he's a son. He's a, he's a sibling. He's a synagogue church-going worshiper. He, he has a nine-to-five job. He's single. He's just, he's just a normal guy. John the Baptist is out there crushing it for the glory of God. And you have Jesus, this unique person who's arriving at the culmination of the ages. And for the first 30 years, he lives in relative obscurity in a small little town of Nazareth. So after the 18 years of the nine to five are done, Jesus would now enter into formal ministry. And at that moment, the Father, God the Father, would give a pronouncement over his life. And this is profound. Notice what God says about Jesus. Skip with me, chapter 3, verse 21. So we're skipping over all of John's ministry. This is where Jesus' life is completely silent and quiet. And here's what we find now, Jesus showing up in verse 21 of chapter 3. And when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. And listen to this. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. What? What has Jesus... But he just lived a normal human life. And yet, now after 30 years of mundane Every day, living in obscurity, the father declares, this is my son. I'm so pleased with him. Now, Bible scholars and theologians, they generally argue two things about this passage. One, 
They argue that Jesus' baptism was not one of repentance because he had no sins to repent of, but rather that he was being baptized as a sign of submission and solidarity to the, to the unfolding plan of God. Amen to that. The second thing that theologians and commentators argue is that when Jesus is being baptized and the Father declares his pleasure, God is declaring his pleasure because Jesus is now entering into his three years of ministry, meaning he's declaring his pleasure out of what Jesus is going to do in terms of future orientation. So because Jesus is now going to enter into ministry, that's why God the Father is pleased. But could it be possible and maybe even logically demanding that God the Father at that moment could not declare pleasure over Jesus' life, just about a future uh, ministry that he would do if the first 30 years of Jesus' life was not in obedience to God. If the first 30 years of him being a carpenter and a son and a sibling and a synagogue worshiper, if that was not pleasing, it would seem odd that if he had lived in a manner that was not what God had designed for him, that he would not be like, well, no, you, you need to repent. Actually, get baptized for repentance. But he never sinned. He never had to repent. This means that maybe that when the father was declaring his pleasure in the life of his son, yes, he was declaring that he was pleased that Jesus would now enter into three years of the miraculous but God was also declaring his pleasure in the 30 years of the mundane. Thirty years of ordinary. Thirty years of obscurity. Thirty years of being a son, a sibling, a worshiper, an employee. You see, we, we often talk so much of, about the last three years of Jesus' life. We love the miracles. And somehow we think that that's the only way to please God in terms of following God. When actually the bulk of Jesus' life was lived in the everyday, ordinary, mundane, you know, this is kind of odd. You would think that the Old Testament saints who had been waiting for this moment, that Jesus is now here at the culmination of the ages for the salvation plan of God, that you don't think that he would have been a nine-to-five job-working dude. And in fact, here when, when God the Father said, oh, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased, if I was John the Baptist, you know how I would have thought? You're talking about me, right? Like, because I'm the one, you know, for the last 18 years, I've been doing kingdom ministry. Hello? Yeah, I'm the one rebuking everyone. I'm the one doing the spectacular stuff. This guy, he, he's been working in a shop. No one knows who he is. It's, you're talking about me, right? No, it was, it, it was to Jesus. How could this be? See, we, we think that Jesus, who was fully divine and fully human, that, that he should obey God uh, primarily through his divinity and do all the things that only Jesus, who was fully divine, could do. And yet what we find is that the human life that he lived 
was just as pleasing to God. How could that be? Why? That doesn't make any sense. But see, this is so consistent with Luke. Because Luke's intent in in revealing Jesus' uniqueness and distinction is by cloaking Jesus with humanity. You know why it's so significant? Uh, If you have your Bibles, you can look, you don't have to, but right after this baptism account, do you know what Luke records next? Can Can someone actually just say it? For the one person with their Bible open? No one said it, but I'm just going to act like, oh yes, a genealogy. Every single gospel account, he is baptized, then he goes into the wilderness. Only Luke, which is trying to display his humanity, has a genealogy. Matthew's genealogy points to Abraham as a starting point. Luke's genealogy climbs all the way up the ladder of humanity to the first human, Adam. And maybe that's our clue. You know, like, um, what, was, what was Adam's calling? What, what, what did God want Adam to do? And, and I know some of us were thinking really hard right now, but no, he, he uh, was supposed to work and keep the garden. He was a gardener. That's a little anticlimactic. God creates the universe by the power of his word, sinless, glory. The heavens are declaring the glory of God. Adam shows up. He's like, I'm ready. I'm ready to live for Jesus. I'm ready to be the first Adam that is supposed to model for all of humanity what Christian discipleship is supposed to look like. Father, what would you have me do? Plant a seed. You mean plant a church? Just plant, can you go to the garden, please? Just plant a seed. What's going, what? What's happening? But see, you know why it's significant is because Adam was actually invited into a much higher principle, a much deeper principle, which is that in the garden, as Adam was working the garden, keeping the garden, protecting the garden, the deeper principles were that he was was just kind of supposed to love God as he was doing everything. He was just delighting in God, loving God, surrendering to God. And whoever kind of shows up, he, he just kind of loves them too. So the woman shows up and he's just supposed to just kind of love, love God and, and, and just love people as he would love himself. I mean, th- those principles were embedded in the beginning. That's why all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, Jesus summarized the entire operating principle of how a Christian, a human should live, is that they're to love God with everything and to love one another, to love their neighbors as themselves. And so that meant that when Adam, when he was in the garden, he was kind of working it. I mean, yeah, the the, the gardening was the outer form, but underneath that, embedded within that was, he was to love God and others through the very means of working and keeping the garden. And so here you have Jesus, whom Paul would call the second Adam. And he shows up and he lives an ordinary life. He's a son, he's a brother, he's a worshiper, he's a carpenter. And of course, after 30 years, God the Father could say, this is my son. I'm so pleased with him. Why? Because Jesus, his entire life, had been operating out of what humans were originally called into from the beginning, which is namely the higher principles of just loving God, delighting in God the Father, surrendering to him moment by moment, and kind of loving those around him. I mean, that was the life that Jesus had lived his whole life. 
Have you ever considered that Jesus did not necessarily, do you think he loved God the Father less during his first 30 years than his three years of ministry? No. Do you think he loved people less in his first 30 years of living ordinary everyday life than his three years of rock star itinerant preaching? No. And in fact, we have hints in the text that Jesus, when he was 12, he submitted to his parents. He grew in wisdom and stature. Why? Because he was operating out of the summation of the entire law to love God, to love others. So that when he got baptized, he was just continuing his surrender to what God had for him next. Could it be that maybe Christian discipleship is not us trying to find some human category where we say, I think it's supposed to look like this. Or maybe I'm supposed to look like that. But could it be rather that we're supposed to look a little bit like Jesus in that whether we are living in the season of 30 years of mundane or three years of miracles, that we are invited to delight in the Father, surrender to the Father, to love those around us, to love God, to love those around us. You know, if if this is true, if this is kind of what discipleship kind of is supposed to look like, it it kind of does bring us to three implications for us this morning. Here's the first one, is that discipleship, you following Jesus, you conforming into the image of Jesus Christ, it flows out of saved humanity rather than bypassing our humanity. I'll, I'll say that again. Discipleship flows out of our saved humanity rather than bypassing our humanity. You know, what's remarkable is that uh, Jesus wasn't searching to escape mundane. Instead, he, being the image of the invisible, lived out the fullness of humanity for all that God had intended in loving God and loving other people as he was growing up. Could it be that maybe he's inviting you uh, this morning, not, not necessarily you, for you to ask the question of, am, am I being radical enough with my life? Am I being faithful enough? Because sometimes, isn't it true that when we ask those questions, uh, we almost have to bypass our own humanity. We almost have to bypass the mundane of life. We almost have to bypass the very existence in which we find ourselves. It's almost like an escapism to go somewhere else. But, but could, it, could it be instead that God is simply inviting us right where you are, in the ordinary of the everyday, he's inviting you to walk into your reclaimed, saved, new creation, spirit-filled humanity, that you love God today. So if life is difficult, you love him in the pain. And you love those people in the pain. But, but if life is amazing and you have some amazing opportunities coming down your pipeline, you pursue him in that season and you love the people that you encounter. I wonder sometimes if, if that's one of the weaknesses of kind of the more Western 21st century Americanized, uh, hey, fa- this is the kind of radical faith that we're supposed to look like is that it's entirely possible for us to actually not even like follow God and surrender and love God because it's easier to follow a movement than it is a person. 
discipleship flows out of our saved humanity rather than bypassing our humanity. Uh, The second implication for us is that discipleship circumstances may change, but the calling remains fixed. What I mean by that is the calling is the same for everyone. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are called to love God with everything and to love one another. Now, the circumstance of that may change, right? So just like for Jesus, uh, he was a baby who was being dedicated as a temple. And then he was a 12-year-old boy uh, who was having to start own his own personal faith and adhere to the Mosaic law. Then he became a carpenter for 18 years. But in that context, as all those forms changed, he still loved God and loved others in those contexts. So his calling never truly changed. But the form, the external can change. So the mom of three kids who's working a nine to five, the college student who's got way too much time on his hands, and the man who was swamped with work, they are all called the same discipleship. To love God and to love others in their context. Now the form may look different. For some of us, we're stuck in a 30-year mundane period. But he's asking you to love God and love others in that context. Some of us, things are going crazy. It's going amazing. We're in the three years of, of miracles. And he's saying, you can still glorify me as you love me and love other people. Discipleship circumstances may change, but the calling it remains fixed. And, and I think that's one of the, the pains of, of certain categorized Christianity, right? Is that when you're a college student, it works. And then when you graduate and you're working a nine to five, it doesn't work anymore. And, and you get married and you have kids and you just feel guilty all the time. But instead, no, no, it's just love God, love others. The third implication Because, you know, I realize for some of us, we might be sitting there saying, I feel like this is a great way to just live comfortably. Like, yeah, I'm living in the OC because I'm loving God and I'm loving other people. Yeah, I just decided to do whatever I want with my life because I'm loving God, I'm loving other people. But this brings us to our third implication. Discipleship clarity occurs by delighting in and surrendering to the Father daily. Do you know how you know whether you're where you should be? Do you know how whether you know whether you're supposed to love God and love others in your specific context or in another context? If the outer shell should look different, here's how. Is that every single day we wake up and we say, Father, I'm completely yours today. You're, you're glorious. You're beautiful. I love you. And you have my complete life today. I surrender everything. You can direct my heart however you want it to. And I'll say yes. You know what's amazing is, have you noticed Jesus? No one told him, hey, you need to go get baptized by John now. You're going to start ministry. He's like, oh my gosh, are you serious? What do I do with the carpentry business? He just kind of shows up. You know what he said during his ministry? Because he clearly didn't have a plan. He just said, I just do whatever I see my father doing. How does he pick his disciples? He spends all night praying, delighting in the father, submitting. And he's like, you, let's go, follow me. So as he's following and pursuing God, the Father, and surrendering daily, clarity just starts showing up in his life. Discipleship clarity occurs by delighting in and surrendering to the Father daily. Maybe I can illustrate it this way. You know, uh, for those of you who don't know, I have two young kids. Uh, I have a boy. He'll be five in October. I have a girl. She'll be two in October. And, you know, just to be honest, people ask me, what do you want them to be? How do you want them to live? 
I, I don't, maybe it's, I'm, I'm a bad dad. I don't have very high expectations for them. What I mean by that is, oh, I mean, I, okay, I do have high expectations, but my high expectation is, uh, here's what I really want. I want them to love me. I want them to be nice to their friends and love other people and work hard. Like, I, I don't want them every single day of their life saying, dad, like, what, what am I supposed to do next? Like, dad, like, Am I supposed to, do you want me to, uh, is, is this what I'm supposed to be doing? Or someone told me that, you know, maybe they would like it if you would like it if I did this or I just love me. And as we spend time together, you're going to know my heart. And as you know my heart, you're just going to have clarity because what I really want for you, I just want you to love me. And I just want you to be nice to those around you and love people because in so doing, people are going to see my glory. And I just wonder if we've overcomplicated things. Could I ask you a question for all of us this morning as we bring this to an end? Uh, are, are you currently delighting in God? Is, is your delight? And out of that delight, is surrender easy and joyful? That you have given him permission to direct your heart to however way that he wants to. And, and if you can say, yeah, yes, I wonder if you are living out your Christian and human discipleship in a way that's marked by radical and ordinary implications. And for those of us who, uh, you know, if we're saying, I don't know, I, I don't know, I'm not sure if I can say yes to that. Um, you know, the, the invitation for all of us this morning is, is not... Um, well, you need to try harder now. Here's the joy, is, is that Jesus, whose whole life was surrendered to the Father, he delighted in, Father, in the Father and surrendered his life to the point that he would live loving God and loving other people perfectly for 33-some years. And our, our, the penalty for our inability to fulfill our human calling he paid the penalty for that when he died on the cross. And he rose again in power. And those who place their faith in him, you're now invited back to now love God and love others by the power of the Spirit. Because you get to him out of the overflow of what he's already done on your behalf. See, there's something so poetic about Jesus who worked with wood and stone, but he purchases your life this morning because he died on a piece of wood and at his resurrection, rolled away was a stone. The miraculous and the mundane, all tied intricately together. You know, um, I have funny question, uh, conversations with people about pastoral ministry. They, they, they say things like, so like, what do you do all day? Um, one of the questions that I get is, why are you a pastor? Um, you know why I'm a pastor? Because I'm not good at anything else. No, 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 no. <laughs> Someone's like, I think that's kind of true. No, it, it's because, um, just to be honest with you, is I just kind of delight in the Father and just surrender to him. I'm just convinced that at this particular season of my life, at this moment in time in history, this is just what he wants me to do. 
Could that season change ever? The father can change it. That's up to him. But no matter what I do or don't do, he's calling me to an ordinarily radical and a radically ordinary life of loving him, loving others, as I delight in the father and surrender to him daily. And that is Christian discipleship. Let's pray.